Welcome to The Catholic Foodie Show. I'm Jeff Young, your host, The Catholic Foodie, known as The Catholic Foodie. You can find more information about uh, The Catholic Foodie, what it's all about, over at catholicfoodie.com. It's about Catholic culinary inspiration, you know, to help you grow in faith around the table of the Eucharist and around the family dinner table. This is a special show today. Uh, Not only is it special because uh, my youngest daughter, who is almost, almost, not yet, not quite, but almost four months old, is right here with me. (laughs) I'm just looking at that smile. I'm just, I want to eat her up, you know, just want to eat her up. I see you over there. What do you do? What you saying? What are you saying? Huh? I think she wants to be on the radio show. Uh, I, I, we are here together. This is uh, just just one evening at the home studio, and I am uh, pre-recording this, so you're going to be hearing this on Friday, Friday, um, October uh, something. What is the date? Today's the eighth, the ninth, the ninth. Two days ago was the feast of Our Lady of the Rosary. Very special uh, feast day for me. Uh, and then, and then yesterday, the eighth, the eighth, uh, we have good news on the eighth and the bad news on the eighth. Uh, the bad news, I guess, is that, uh, Chef Paul Prudhomme has passed away, uh, passed away today. And, uh, he, um, he is credited. You may have, you may have heard his name. He's had a, a number of, uh, uh, television cooking television shows, um, over the years. He, um, he has done more, I think, single-handedly for the culinary culture of South Louisiana than anybody else. Uh, just absolutely amazing. From from the, the development of the recipe known as blackened redfish, which was an absolute uh, craze that, would have, that had people 300 deep standing in line outside of his restaurants back in the 80s uh, when he first developed that, uh, to um, his line of spices, you know, magic seasoning, Paul Prudhomme's uh, magic seasonings. He, he is not only, not only uh, was he uh, a national celebrity here in the United States, but really, it, truly an ambassador for the culinary culture of South Louisiana to the rest of the world. And uh, he will be missed. I know uh, I've seen on Facebook a lot of uh, chef friends uh, leaving words of, uh, of, of memories, uh, words of, of sadness uh, at his passing. At the same time, you know, as Catholics, we pray for him. We pray for his soul. We pray uh, for, for all the souls of the deceased. And uh, he was a good man. He was a, a good man, a gentle man. And uh, if I had time today, I would play for you a little uh, clip of Chef John Besh and what he had to say um, uh, today about the passing, or yesterday, rather, about the passing of um, Chef Paul Prudhomme. So I, I do ask you to keep him uh, in, your, in his family, in, in your prayers. He was 75 years old. Now, the good news, there was some good news, too. Uh, I, I had a, an opportunity to speak with a new, uh, well, with an author about a new book that has just come out. And this book is, is fantastic. Uh, it's called The Gospel of Happiness. And, uh, you know, I'm feeling really happy right now because I'm staring at, at my beautiful baby girl, Zelly, and she's just smiling away over there. You might get to hear her laugh a little bit. You want to laugh and coo and say anything to anybody? You want to say something to folks? What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? She's being quiet now. All of a sudden, when you direct attention to her, she gets really, really quiet. But you may hear her from time to time. 
but happiness, you know, we all want it. We all seek after it. That's really what we want. Uh, I, I mentioned you'll hear this a little bit later in the conversation uh, about having studied Aristotle. And so when I first saw this title, the first thing I thought about was Aristotle. You know, the golden mean, uh, one of the famous uh, thoughts of, of Aristotle that, uh, you know, all things in moderation, that, you know, too much of a good thing is not good, right? So you have vice on the, uh, or, or you have, um, you know, vice and virtue. And this, this virtue is really found in the, in the means, in the mean, in the median, the middle, you know, the middle ground. Uh, too much courage is just sort of an audacious spirit that, that could be uh, rash, making rash decisions and, and lead, your, lead, lead to bad things. Things, right, but but not enough courage is is what it's cowardice. So what do you want? You want the perfect. You want the middle, the mean, which would be uh, right there in the middle, which would be courage. Uh, but but he said that the one thing that we could never have enough of is happiness. That's the thing we can we can. There is no such thing as having happiness in the extreme, right? We could we always want happiness. We seek after it. And as a matter of fact, I think a lot of times we make our decisions day to day because we want to be happy. Now, even if those decisions lead to bad things, and even if those decisions are for bad things. So this particular book really caught my eye, The Gospel of Happiness. Uh, Dr. Christopher uh, uh, Kayser is the author, and I was privileged uh, to have a conversation with him yesterday about the book, and I'm going to share that with you uh, today. You know, uh, Dr. Kayser um, uh, Dr. Dr. Christopher Kayser is uh, a William E. Simon Visiting Fellow in Religion and Public Life in the James Madison Program at Princeton University and a Professor of Philosophy at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. Dr. Kayser's research uh, on issues of ethics, philosophy, and religion has been uh, in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, the Huffington Post, and the National Review, as well as on NPR, the BBC, EWTN, ABC, NBC, Fox, CBS, MSNBC, TEDx, and the Today Show, and we could say today the Catholic Foodie Show. <laughs> it was such a joy to uh, to be able to uh, make contact with uh, Dr. Kayser yesterday and to have this conversation. We'll share that with you, and I want to really focus on that for the majority of the show. Uh, you're really going to enjoy this, I, I think. Um, excellent book, The Gospel of Happiness. It's uh, published by Random, well, Image, Image Books, right? Random, or Penguin, Random House uh, imprint, uh, Image Books, and uh, is available where, you know, all, all good books are, are sold. Amazon certainly uh, has it uh, in stock. Uh, excellent book. Uh, one that I think, you know, some of us, I know myself included, especially as a seminarian, I was very uh, suspicious of psychology, and I kind of uh, pitted psychology against religion, that the two uh, were inimical. They were, they were not friendly toward each other. Uh, and yet, uh, just amazing to read this, uh, this philosopher, this, this doctor, uh, this professor, talk about uh, the relationship between what, he, what is termed uh, positive psychology and, uh, and religion and how it really does. I mean, if you see this and you, you kind of put it into practice in, you, in your own life, and throughout the book he offers all these suggestions of ways that we could do this, that, that if we put that into practice, then practice in our faith really does lead us to greater happiness. So uh, without further ado, let's jump into this conversation with Dr. Christopher Kayser in his new book, The Gospel of Happiness. 
We are privileged, I'm privileged uh, today to have a special guest on the show with us. We have uh, Dr. Christopher Kayser, uh, who is the author of a book that, I mean, you're just looking at the, the title. I am uh, so excited about this book. It's called The Gospel of Happiness. Uh, Dr. Kayser, welcome to The Catholic Foodie Show. Oh, thank you very much. Now, I'm telling you, the, the, the title of the book really does grab me. You know, I, I have to admit, I, I know, and I, I want you to give me a little background on yourself, but I, I do know that you have a degree in uh, philosophy, uh, and, and I actually studied, I was in the seminary twice, long story, but I was in the seminary twice, ended up graduating from a college seminary with a degree in philosophy. I have a, a great love for that topic, and I spent a lot of time studying philosophy from, you know, the, the ancients, uh, from the Greeks, uh, all the way up to uh, modern times, and uh, it's just something that's very close and, and kind of near and dear to my heart, and I couldn't help when I saw the title of the book to think automatically, as if I'm trained, to think about Aristotle. <laughs> is there a connection there? <laughs> there is a, there's definitely a connection. Yeah, Aristotle, as you remember, I'm sure from your studies, uh, taught that happiness is the ultimate aim of all human action. And so, as a philosopher, I've studied uh, Aristotle and uh, Boethius and Thomas Aquinas and many philosophers' uh, insights on happiness. And so, in the book, what I'm trying to do is to bring those philosophical insights together also with some theological insights and also psychological insights to really marshal all the evidence and wisdom I can to try to help us all to become a little bit more happy. And I guess, I mean, really, the, the, the first question should be, what, what is happiness? I, I, it's something that we all want, obviously. We're all trying to be happy. But is there a way, can we define it? What is happiness? Well, lots of different definitions, of course, have been given. But I think maybe one of the best ones is uh, that happiness consists in five different elements. So it consists in positive emotion, in engagement with life, in having good relationships, in meaning, that is making a contribution to something bigger than ourselves, and finally, in achievement. And I think when we have these five different elements, they're sometimes go by the acronym PERMA, uh, positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and achievement. When we have these five, I think that that really is a pretty good definition of what happiness is. And it's something that uh, I recall from my studies of, of Aristotle, um, and again, this is going uh, quite a few years back, <laughs> so I may be a little hazy, but uh, one of the things he, I just remember at the time being kind of blown away by is that it's kind of innate. It's in us. We have this longing, this desire for happiness, and it, uh, it goes something along, like, uh, along the lines of this, that that no matter what our decisions are in life, the things that we're going after, that ultimately what we're doing is, is trying to get happiness, trying to, to make a, a, a decision for something that, that would make us happy, even if that decision really does bring pain and heartache and, and all kind of bad stuff. That uh, no one walks out in the morning and says, oh, I want to go be depressed today. I want to go do something that's going to really make my life just awful. Yet, just as, a, as an example, you know, addiction, you know, is, is something that even in the beginning we may be going after happiness, but we're really making a decision, even though it's for happiness, we're, we're deciding for something that is not going to make us happy. Is that, am I on the right track here as far as uh, what Aristotle said that we really are longing for this? We're trying, even the bad decisions are really decisions that we think are going to make us happy? 
Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, the theme insight was expressed by uh, Blaise Pascal, who said that uh, even the person who's hanging himself is really seeking happiness. Right. So I think that we do seek happiness, but oftentimes we are uh, mistaken about what actually will deliver on his happiness. So for a good example, this is money. Uh, many people believe that if they just had lots of money, say they won the lottery, then they would be really lastingly happy. Uh, but actually, people have studied lottery winners, and it turns out that they do have a, a short-term burst of happiness, but basically within a year of winning, uh, most lottery winners report that they're back to the same happiness levels they had before. Wow. So even though we might think that having lots of money will make us happy, in fact, it really doesn't make uh, much of a difference at all, at least if we're you know, already getting three meals a day and we already have uh, you know, a place to sleep and things like that. So yeah, I think everyone does seek happiness, but the question is, where are we really going to find greater happiness? Well, we need to take a break. You are listening to The Catholic Foodie Show on Breadbox Media. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to The Catholic Foodie Show on Breadbox Media. So glad that you're here. So glad that you're listening today. Uh, What a great conversation I'm having with Dr. Christopher Kayser, author of the gospel of happiness. Let's jump back into that conversation right now. You know, in the in the very beginning of the book, you uh, you, you share a story about uh, psychology, which um, you know my ears perked up when, when I, uh, I read that story because. You know, as a seminarian, I was a seminarian. I think I mentioned this to you earlier. Uh, I was a seminarian uh, twice. Uh, the first time I spent two years in formation with Mother Teresa's uh, priest down in uh, Mexico, and uh, and then the second uh, the second uh, stint in the seminary was studying for the diocese of Baton Rouge and um, graduated from a, a Benedictine uh, um, seminary college. Uh, but I remember in both cases, because of the nature of the priesthood, because of the, the nature of that vocation, uh, both of them required psychological testing and uh, across the board. Every, every seminarian coming forward uh, had to be tested, and I, I had to go through that. I had to go through it twice, um, and it was something that I know among the seminarians, at least, were kind of like, oh, man, you know, they're making us do this and blah, 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 and, and there was a lot of um, fear, I think, in general about the process because we almost felt like it was going to um, make us into something that we're not, if that makes sense. There was a, there was a, a, a natural, uh, almost instinctive uh, distrust of, of psychology. And, and then I read here in, in the beginning of the book that, uh, that you had, I would say maybe kind of a somewhat similar situation where you didn't give uh, psychology a whole lot of uh, credit there in the beginning, huh? Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, I mentioned in the book how when I was in graduate school uh, about 25 years ago, I was uh, you know having a difficult time. I w- was married and uh, we were only making $10,000 a year, and so we we're very poor. And you know, academically, it was a very challenging graduate school at University of Notre Dame. And anyway, I was having these kind of uh, difficulties, and I was uh, running with a friend, and he said, "Well, you know, maybe you should go talk to a counselor." And I thought, "Well, I've never done that before, but..." You know, maybe I should. Okay, I'll try it. So anyway, I went to a counselor, and we had our first session, and I thought things went fine. And then at the end of the second session, the counselor turned to me and said, well, you know, Chris, there are two people for whom psychological counseling is completely worthless. And I said, oh, okay, well, who's that? And he said, well, the first are hardcore addicts. You know, if you're addicted to heroin, you know, it just doesn't do any good for you. I said, oh, well, okay. 
And he said, the second group are philosophers like you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that was the end of the counseling sessions for me. That was, uh, <laughs> that was yeah. the end of it. But, but, you know, I think there's good reason that, uh, that psychology has uh, earned a bad reputation among some people. And in particular, uh, early in its formations, uh, psychology was pretty explicitly uh, anti-religious. So mm-hmm. the, the founder mm-hmm. of psychology, Sigmund Freud, was a notorious atheist who was very much opposed to Christianity. But I think psychology has changed a lot uh, since the days of Freud. And so now psychologists have really recognized that religious practice is actually a path to not uh, to greater mental health, that, that religious practice actually helps people to live uh, better lives. And so in this book, I'm really trying to to focus on those aspects of psychology that are uh, compatible with Christian belief, but also help enhance Christian living. So that that is it, just fascinating to me that you know h- how can these two things really kind of work together? I know in the in the book and you're kind of setting the groundwork there, talking about this positive psychology, and uh, you know for someone like me who came from that background where I did feel like. My faith, my faith was threatened, you know, is the way I felt, and, and I wasn't alone. I mean, it was a common, common feeling there in the seminary. For someone like like us, what is this uh, positive psychology? How is that different? Well, positive psychology is a fairly recent development in psychology, and it's basically a new branch of psychology that focuses on. Uh, resilience and optimism and flourishing. So for most of the history of psychology, its practitioners have focused on things like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and these negative sorts of things. And those are important to deal with. But in the last about 15 years, psychology has turned uh, its focus to these positive things. And the interesting thing that I discovered in reading positive psychology is that a lot of the recommendations that they have for increasing happiness are things that are really part of the Christian tradition already. So one of the main recommendations they make is to practice forgiveness. And it's, of course, any Christian knows this is really the heart uh, of Jesus' message to us. I mean, think about the Our Father. The very middle of it is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Another thing they recommended was practicing gratitude. And again, this is part and parcel of the Christian tradition. We Christians celebrate every Sunday the Eucharist, and the Eucharist is just the Greek term for Thanksgiving. And they recommended serving neighbor as a way of increasing happiness. So what they're doing, in other words, is providing an empirical justification for many of the practices that are at the heart of Christian belief. And that's uh, that's something I recall, uh, goodness, probably uh 10, 15 years ago, coming across a book, and it was really a, a book, it was written by a priest, and it was about spirituality, and he took, a, I guess, a swing at, at using behavioral psychology as a way to uh, to happiness or, or as a way to practice your faith. As an example, you know, we, we tend to think, I think, uh, we tend to think that um, we got to do all the work, all the decision-making, all the groundwork has to be done in the mind of the soul, you know, and then and then it, then it expresses itself kind of outside of us or, or through our actions. You know, we get have conversion of heart first, and then and then it all comes out from from that that font. Uh, and yet, with behavioral psychology, it was kind of the reverse, and it seems to me to be somewhat similar to what you're saying with positive psychology. That you know. If you if you smile <laughs> and, and you make it a practice or a habit to smile during the day, even though you don't feel like it, eventually it's going to help you feel like it. 
you know, you're going to feel like happier. That was sort of the premise. And so I, I hear something very similar here. I guess one of the things that strikes me is with positive psychology, we know that forgiveness is something that we should do. And forgiveness is something that could make us have more peace in our life, more happiness. But what about the people who, um, even though they know that forgiveness is the right thing to do, but because of their own personal woundedness, uh, things that have happened to him, they may find it, they may find it difficult. Is, do we have any, any help there? Yeah, you're right. Uh, forgiveness definitely can be very difficult. Uh, you know, people have have gone through, uh, many people have gone through very difficult circumstances and people have injured them on purpose and, and done really very hurtful and mean things to them. So, you know, for a good reason, forgiveness is a difficult thing. Uh, one of the important things to remember about forgiveness, though, is that forgiveness is really something that helps the person who forgives. So when we don't forgive someone, it's a little bit like carrying around a bunch of burning hot coals, getting ready to throw these burning hot coals in someone's face. But, you know, as we're waiting for the opportunity to throw these coals in someone's face, you know, the coals are burning up. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, so, so even though, uh, it can seem that forgiveness is just about the other person. In a way, forgiveness is a way of lightening our own load. And so in the book, what I do is I talk about ways to reach forgiveness, ways to move towards uh, forgiveness, both forgiveness as a decision and forgiveness in terms of emotional forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So what I mean is forgiveness as a decision is the choice to treat someone else in a compassionate, humane way, not to seek revenge, not to, uh, you know, treat them as if they're going to scum of the earth or something. On the other hand, emotional forgiveness is actually feeling better around a person. That is when, you know, the person that's harmed you or wronged you comes by, you actually don't have your stomach in a knot. You don't feel, you know, aggressive and terrible towards them. So these are important uh, things to to try to reach. And in the book, I talk about the contemporary psychological research about how we can reach emotional and decisional forgiveness. Well, we need to take a break. You are listening to The Catholic Foodie Show on Breadbox Media. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to The Catholic Foodie Show on Breadbox Media. So glad that you are here. So glad that you are listening today. Uh, what a great conversation I'm having with Dr. Christopher Kayser, author of The Gospel of Happiness. Let's jump back into that conversation right now. In, in the book, you highlight uh, a number of ways. It's not just uh, the forgiveness, and I, I actually have my copy right here. I'm going to try to open it up. You know, I'm, I'm, I tend to joke around uh, a lot, especially when there are females present. I say, look, I'm, I'm male. I can only do one thing at a time. So right now I'm talking. <laughs> now let me find my place in the book. Um, but you, you, you talk about the way of prayer, the way of gratitude, the way of forgiveness, the way of virtue, the way of, of, of willpower. So it's not just one like a like a, a chronological number of of steps you have to work through these are kind of like different types of practices different types of things that we can do in our lives that um, that will help us to to become happier that's right yeah so one of the things they talk about which I think is a very practical and easy thing that anybody could do is called the three good things exercise it's very easy so at the end of at the end of the day you just think about how the day went and you think about any three things that were good that you enjoyed in your day so it could be maybe you had a nice lunch or you had a good conversation with someone or maybe you saw a beautiful sunset and you just write down uh you know what happened and why it happened 
And basically, when they studied this practice, uh, they found that 94% of people that were moderately depressed reported being happier as a result of doing this practice for two weeks. And this practice of gratitude is something that actually was discovered by uh, earlier by St. Ignatius Loyola. St. Ignatius did his spiritual exercises recommended to those who came to him that they do what he called the examine. And the very beginning of the examine is to think about your day and to think about uh, in gratitude for any of the good things that God gave to you in your life. So here again, we find this kind of overlap between what positive psychology is recommending and the wisdom of the saints. And, and is it something like, like this exercise in particular, or as an example, I mean, is it important to write it down? Well, in the study, psychological study they did, they actually had the people write it down. Uh, I'm not sure it would be absolutely necessary to do that, but I think it might be better. Because when we write something down, it becomes, in a way, more real for us, and it becomes more concrete. Uh, That's also true when we're having negative thoughts. So sometimes people are very upset about, uh, you know, some bad thing that's happened to them. And uh, the negative thoughts can swirl around in our minds. But what the psychologists found is that if we take the time to actually write down what's going on, and this could help us to feel better about it. Writing down our thoughts kind of externalizes them and keeps them from kind of swooping around in our head and making us kind of go crazy. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of um, just just kind of getting it out there, getting some distance from it uh, may be the exactly. case. That sounds uh, very helpful. I, I've, I, uh, I love it. I love the idea. I love the concept. I've, I've been a writer. I've been uh, journaling as well for, for years and years. And I know that for me, the downside is I seem to never go back and reread any of it, you know? <laughs> so it's yeah. good to know that the actual writing, just, just writing it. I don't have to go back and read it necessarily. Just writing it is a, is a help. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's true. In the book, one thing I, I mentioned is how uh, another technique that can be used to, to help move towards forgiveness and to get rid of some negative emotions is to write a letter to yourself where you just say, you know, dear Jeff, uh, you know, I understand you're very upset about X, Y, and Z, whatever happened. In the first paragraph, you talk about your feelings, why you're upset. In the second paragraph, you can talk about, uh, kind of universalize it. So you say, you know, whatever you go through or I go through, whatever bad thing we go through is, is not unique to us. That is to say, you know, whatever negative experience we're going through has happened before to literally millions, if not even millions of people. Mm-hmm. So you kind of universalize your negative experience. And then in the last paragraph of your letter, you write the advice you give if, uh, the advice you would receive about this matter from a very wise, saintly, experienced person. So imagine, you know, a great saint or maybe your grandfather or somebody that you just think, wow, is really a wise, experienced person. How would they recommend that you move forward from this experience? And, you know, when you, when you do this sort of letter writing, it allows you to, again, kind of uh, domesticate and tame down the negative experiences that we all go through. And then there's no need to re- rewrite it again. I mean, you can write this letter and be totally honest and brutally honest. And then when you're done with it, you can rip it up and throw it in, throw it away. And no one has to read it again. But, but it's served its purpose of helping you to manage these emotions. And and you know, as you were you were sharing that, I was just reflecting a little bit on uh, how some of it, in my mind at least, seems to dovetail a bit with some of the messages that we just received a week or so ago from Pope Francis as he was here in the United States. You know, one of the things that he uh, emphasized over and over again was the importance of the family, but really just is those relationships and our happiness. It, we don't live in a bubble, you know, and, and a lot of what we go through in life, a lot of the happiness that we seek. 
uh, involves other people. And so this is something that we can put into practice uh, that helps with uh, with those relationships. H- how could um, it just makes me wonder, you know, how, how would you envision uh, like this book impacting a, a family, like in, within the family dynamics? Uh, that's a that's a great question. Uh, you know, I think when we're happier, that actually influences everyone with whom we come in contact. So everyone knows about contagious diseases, right? If you mm-hmm. get the flu or whatever, you can spread that to other people in your family very easily. But we also are contagious in terms of our emotions. So if mom or dad comes home and mom and dad's in a horrible mood and grumpy and <laughs> stomping around the house, well, you know, the kids pick up on that, the spouse picks up on that, the whole family is kind of infected with that. Whereas if we can come home and be filled with gratitude and filled with appreciation, uh, this is something also that the whole family can pick up on. So we're contagious in terms of our, our positive emotion when we do that. So that's why I think when we try to deepen our happiness, sometimes people think, well, this is kind of selfish. You're all in it for yourself. Uh, I, I don't think that's really true. Uh, if we're really seeking happiness through loving God and loving neighbor, this is not a selfish thing at all. This is something that benefits everybody that we come in contact with. So if we're finding happiness through loving God and loving neighbor, through being more grateful, through forgiving others, through appreciating others, through serving others, this is just the opposite of selfishness. This is a kind of contagious joy that is going to help not just us, but it's going to help everybody we come in contact with. So I think it's it's what I hope really ideally is that uh, our individual uh, flourishing and gratitude and forgiveness and happiness can actually be contagious and passed on to people in our family and people in our, our friends that are in our community too. And that, that reminds me a lot of, of Mother Teresa of Calcutta who, um, you know, one of her, her she, she got, uh, uh, some people cr- uh, critiqued her at, at different times because she really wasn't about the business of proselytizing. She really wasn't about the business of overtly uh, trying to convert these uh, people of, of different religions, whether it was in India, the Hindus, or whatever. But uh, she was really big on just the ministry of presence, just just being there and being with people. And because she was a woman who was just so uh, 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 deeply rooted in her relationship with God, um, she was able to bring that to all the people that she came in contact with. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I, I can totally see how this, the, the book relates uh, uh, to like the living example of, of, of the saints. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I did mention the whole thing about, you know, happiness really striking me in the, in the, in the, in the title of the book, but there's more there, you know, the gospel of happiness. Why did you name the book, the gospel of happiness? Well, gospel is, uh, as you probably know, the, the term that just means good news. And so what I was trying to do is capture the idea that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, really is good news. Uh, and the gospel gives us a kind of happiness, I think, that transcends the happiness that positive psychology can give. So I think that everything I learned from positive psychology, nothing nothing there contradicts the faith. But the faith actually augments it and helps it grow uh, beyond again, the happiness that psychology can give us. So one example is that psychology really doesn't have an answer for guilt. And what I mean by guilt, uh, the violation of love that we all do when we fail to love God the way we should, when we fail to love neighbor. And so part of the, the joy of the gospel is that 
Jesus is able to deliver us from that guilt and to forgive our sins. So we don't have to carry around this lack of love that we have caused, uh, this disunity we've caused in terms of love, of lacking love of God and lacking love of neighbor. We can have that forgiven. So really the book's trying to show in a way the uh, harmony of faith and reason, that what we learn from faith, what we learn from Scripture about happiness is something that does not contradict what we learn in psychology. And what we learn in psychology can actually augment and help us to live the life of faith uh, more faithfully. And and so when it comes to something like uh, prayer, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about uh, forgiveness and how forgiveness, uh, you know, the, this positive psychology dovetails so well with, with our faith on that. And same thing with gratitude. What about what about prayer? I mean, just just yesterday we celebrated the uh, the church celebrated the the feast of Our Lady of the Holy Rosary on October seventh, and, uh, and and what a beautiful prayer that is. But how could how does psycho- this positive psychology come together here to to make us more with our faith to to make us more happy? Well, positive psychology actually does uh, talk about prayer, which is might surprise you, but they've, they've done psychological studies about uh, the power of prayer. One of the interesting things they found is actually about the rosary. They found that praying the rosary is a way of uh, lowering and lessening anxiety. And I kind of do this just anecdotally, because sometimes if I'm on a plane or something and there's a lot of turbulence, I'll you know, say the rosary, and I do notice it kind of calms me down. But this is, again, something that they found uh, through these empirical studies. One thing we could do when we pray, which I think is a, a beautiful way to pray, is to pray, it's sometimes called a loving kindness prayer. So it's very easy. You just think about, um, say, someone in your life that you love very, very much, maybe your husband or wife or your child or your mother, your father. And you just pray and wish them well. You pray a prayer petition so that they may have health. They may have happiness, they may have security, they may live with ease. And then you pray for someone who's maybe a little less closely connected to you, maybe, you know, a good friend. You pray for them, and then you pray for someone who's still further connected to you, maybe a work colleague. And then finally you pray for everyone that that you're in contact with, really everyone in the whole world even. And when they study this prayer, this loving-kindness prayer, they found that this, too, really deepens people's happiness and makes them, it actually causes physical changes in the body. So in, a, in an interesting way, psychology is showing how these practices, these spiritual practices, are ways of really deepening our happiness and deepening our connection with others. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. It's amazing to me, you know, and and you see something like uh, just, just this past week or so with uh, Pope Francis here in the United States, and he's... He's always, always asking us to pray for him, you know, um, which right, is which right. is a, a beautiful, just a, a beautiful uh, uh, living witness, right, of the, uh, well, humility, first of all, but just a beautiful living witness of the power of other people's prayers. You know, people, I'm sure they look at him, they go, oh, you don't need my prayers, you're the Pope, you know, but he's saying, no, 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 right. your, your prayer is valuable, please pray for me. And I was really touched at, at one point, and right now in the, in the moment, I can't remember if it was in Washington, D.C. Or, or New York, I think, it, I don't think it was in Philadelphia, but when he, he, uh, he said, even, even for you who are not uh, a believer, you know, just to wish me well, wish me well. And that is just such a, uh, to me at least, it sounds very similar to what you're talking about here with this loving kindness prayer. It's, it could be a prayer, but some of it is just simply wishing other people well. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, I, you know, maybe part of the reason that that uh, 
that all this works is that I think it's I think it's probably true when you when you're wishing people well when you're praying for people, I can't help but think this disposes you towards treating them with greater kindness and greater compassion. I mean, if you're praying every day for your husband or your wife, you're praying every day for your kids and your relatives and your work colleagues. I can't help but think that this disposes you towards greater compassion towards them, kindness towards them, thinking about them and helping them. So we are cooperating with God, you know, when we're praying for other people. Uh, so it's a, it's a very beautiful and effective way. Another way of praying, of course, for Catholics, the most important way is through the Mass. And in the book, I kind of go through uh, what the Mass is and show the links that uh, it has to, to positive psychology. Maybe the most profound link is, is this link of thanksgiving and gratitude. So the Eucharist, as you know, is the Greek term for thanksgiving. So every Mass is a chance to offer thanks to God. And one of the things I discovered in writing the book is that uh, Thanksgiving Day is the day on which there are the fewest number of suicides. So the rate of suicide oh, in wow. the United States goes way down on Thanksgiving. Yeah. And why is that? Well, I think probably because on Thanksgiving Day, people are, you know, remembering and being grateful for all the many things and the blessings in their, in their life. So rather than thinking, I don't have this and I don't have that, people on Thanksgiving are really focusing on what they do have and be grateful for that. And so we as Catholics are lucky because we have Thanksgiving Day not just once a year in November, but we have it every single Sunday, even more often. And that's what the Mass is. The very last words of every Mass are what? You know, thanks be to God. That's, right. that's the message the Church sends us out into the world with. And what a great message it is to have our hearts filled with gratitude. Well, we need to take a break. You are listening to The Catholic Foodie Show on Breadbox Media. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to the Catholic Foodies Show on Breadbox Media. So glad that you're here. So glad that you were listening today. Uh, what a great conversation I'm having with Dr. Christopher Kayser, author of The Gospel of Happiness. Let's jump back into that conversation right now. That is, that is beautiful. That's beautiful. You know, one of the things, uh, and this may be a little bit more challenging, uh, and I don't even know how to how to word it properly, but, you know, one of the things I do with the Catholic Foodie is I try to uh, encourage uh, and inspire families to uh, to spend more time together, you know, in the kitchen, uh, but also uh, around the table to, to really, you know, kind of get back to the heart of what uh, family meals are all about, which uh, goes back really even into to Scripture and the, the shared covenant meals that we see throughout uh, the Bible. And uh, I hear from families, I hear from moms and dads on a regular basis, and uh, a lot of times it's, it's, uh, they're voicing frustration uh, because life is just so busy, uh, families are being pulled in different directions, um, it's almost as if you know, they can't, they're going in two different directions all the time, and uh, even trying to share a meal, sometimes even on a weekly basis, can be very challenging. And I, one of the things I also try to uh, emphasize is that although I think good food is really, really good, and I love to cook, and I love to, to do all this, at the same time, the food really isn't the centerpiece. The food really isn't what this is all about. It's about those relationships. So how can some, how can a family maybe take some of the principles of this book and concretely put those into practice together, uh, whether it's, you know, at the table or throughout the day or, or what? Do you have any, like, uh, suggestions on, on that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think one thing that we try to do as a family is what you talked about this the family meal. But but I think another possibility, which is 
which is maybe do, doable, is to uh, pray together at night before bed. So, you know, you could gather, everyone has to go to bed at some point, so you gather the kids together and uh, and pray. And, and I think there's a real link here between everything we've talked about, actually. So part of your prayer could be having each person in the family thank God for some blessing in their life, something good that took place that day or just in general in their life. And then maybe having each person in the family also express a prayer petition, praying for someone, you know, for a classmate who's not doing well, for, you know, uh, somebody who needs help. And in a way, you know, this is a way of uh, bringing the family together and of uh, bringing the family together around something very important, namely the, the love and worship of God. And maybe you can c- conclude the prayer with it, our Father or something like that. So that's a that's something that we try to do as a family, and I think it's a nice, very beautiful way to, to conclude the day. And it doesn't take very long, you know, just a, just a few minutes at the end of the day, but it's a nice way to bring the family together and to have a chance to uh, be grateful and also to ask God's help for people who need help. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. That's one of the things, you know, I think in, in reading the book, I, I love the section on gratitude because I know that, uh, you know, I've got three teenagers at home right now. Uh, we just have a, we have a four month old, <laughs> a four month old and three, and three, thank you. Thank you. And three teenagers. And, uh, it's interesting because, you know, my kids were so close in age, the first three, they're, they're, uh, well right now, 16, uh, 14 and 13, you know, that we had three and two and a half years. And so they're really kind of tight there. And actually part of the year they're, you know, they will be part of the year, 16, 15, 14. So, um, right. it, you know, they always did everything at the same time. You know how the kids go through different stages, different, uh, you know, when they're little, they're all doing right. the same activities. And we do like family prayer at night. It, it's always going to be the same because they're like little kids. And now that they're teenagers and they have like their own, you know, will <laughs> and their own minds right, right. and their own, it, it becomes more and more of a challenge. And what I find personally as a challenge is that um, it, it's hard. It becomes harder and harder to keep the family unit together because they all want to go do yeah. their own things. It's like things are breaking apart and, um, and I don't want it to break apart prematurely. Of course they do need to grow and they do need to go out on their own, but at the same time, this is a, this is a fundamental time for them to be growing and understanding what, what family is all about. And it's a beautiful time for them to watch their baby sister being loved and cared for by their parents, but also, you know, because it gives them a sense of how we love them as infants. They, they don't remember that, right. but they get to see right. it, you know, but what I see time and time again is that these kids, they want to do the right thing. They want to be good. They want to be happy. <clears throat> and, and at the same time, that whole age of the teen years where things just seem to be all about me. I have found that uh, that gratitude, you know, reaching out to them and trying to get them to, to share those types of ideas with us, too, that gratitude really does help to bring us together, and it really does help to bring those kids to kind of keep them in, you know, keep them in with the with the family unit, and to hopefully, hopefully to try to, to keep them happy. So I know that's one thing I am trying to focus on more uh, here uh, as a result of, of reading this book. And, uh, and speaking of reading this book, um, what do you hope as the author, what do you hope uh, folks will gain from reading The Gospel of Happiness? Well, I, I suppose that different readers will hopefully gain different things. Uh, but I, I suppose one thing I do hope is that whoever reads the book is able to come away with some concrete and practical uh, ways of increasing their happiness. So in the last chapter in particular, I talk about uh, strengthening willpower. And I think if, if we're going to be happy, uh, we'll need to strengthen our willpower because 
least for myself, and I probably don't alone in this, uh, many times my happiness is the result of my own uh, poor decisions. That is to say, sometimes I am my own worst enemy. And I think that's true of a lot of people. I mean, when we, when we fail to love God and fail to love neighbor, uh, usually it's not because we had no idea what we were doing was wrong or because uh, we just could care less and we just don't care about loving God and loving neighbor, but rather because of weakness of will. We kind of know the right thing to do, and then we get the moment that we end up not doing it. So in the last chapter of the book, I talk about ways to strengthen willpower to enable us to do uh, maybe a little better than we have been doing in terms of loving God and loving neighbor. And there's lots of very concrete, practical suggestions about how to gain uh, greater willpower. And that's something that's not easy. I know that from a food perspective, you know, I always have, uh, uh, when I have spoken in different places or the question comes up in, in interviews and, you know, sometimes they'll say, oh, you're the Catholic foodie, you know, isn't that kind of gluttonous? <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, there's a there's a place for the food, uh, uh, definitely. But the beautiful thing about our uh, our, our church is that it, it's seasonal, you know, our liturgical year is seasonal. There's a time for everything. And uh, when it comes to food, I know fasting is something that is is very effective in helping us to uh, to grow uh, our willpower. And uh, are there other suggestions that you would have? Yeah, so contemporary psychology has actually studied uh, how to strengthen willpower quite extensively. So one of the surprising things I discovered was that actually just taking a walk, uh, just a five-minute walk around the block, can actually greatly boost willpower. Uh, basically, it's one researcher called it a, a willpower miracle. And it's something, you know, unless it's boring rain or something, you know, it's pretty easy to do. Just take a walk around the block for five minutes. Uh, another thing that they suggest is to avoid uh, willpower drainers, so things that, that deplete us of willpower. So uh, if we can uh, get enough sleep, if we can eat healthy foods, if we can, uh, say, avoid use of alcohol, all those things are going to be ways of boosting our, our willpower. Uh, so these are there's a number of things in the book I recommend uh, that we can do to strengthen our willpower. And of course, you know, no one's going to have perfect willpower. I mean, we're we're human beings, and we're going to have uh, falls, and we're going to be imperfect. But I think, you know, if we can if we can improve and move in the right direction, I think that's that's definitely going to lead to greater happiness. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. And that, that, I guess that's the, the point, too. Huh? It is kind of step by step. It doesn't all happen overnight, uh, but we can continue to grow step by step. Well, is there, uh, you know, we're coming to the end of the interview, and I want to thank you, first of all. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining me today. But is there anything else you'd like to add? Any, any other uh, thoughts? Uh I suppose one of the things I, I guess I'd like to, to uh, mention to people is that, you know, in writing this book, it, it, I discovered lots of different things that were very important, but I, I found that it was really important for me to uh, discover these things. In other words, for me, it's not just a theoretical matter that oh, I learned some interesting facts, but it really did help me to become more happy and to gain greater uh, willpower. So, of course, I'm not you know, everything I like to be, I'm far, far from perfect. But I do think that if other people can, can move in the right direction, if only a little bit, then uh, writing the book will, will have been well worth it. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's, it's um, um, very practical, very practical. And I think very much needed today. Uh, I want to thank you again. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kayser, for, for joining me here on uh, The Catholic Foodie. The book is uh, called uh, The Gospel of Happiness. It is published by uh, Image Books, and uh, it's available where? Uh, 
Uh, you can get it on uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. I think I hope it's fine bookstores everywhere, but certainly online at Amazon.com. You can certainly get a copy of it there. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Great speaking with you. Well, again, it, it was just such a great conversation with Dr. Kayser, uh, and I want to thank him again. Thank him so much. Uh, there's going to be links in the show notes, uh, by the way, to the book. So if you go to catholicfoodie.com, you're going to see a post there for this particular show. Uh, but again, I can't recommend this book enough. Fantastic. Image Books. It's Penguin Random House imprint. Image Books, uh, The Gospel of Happiness. And I have to tell you, it has been an absolute joy to have my baby girl, Zelly Marie, who is named after St. Therese's mama. Right? St. Therese, the little flower. One day, she's four months old. She, she's kind of helped me host the show today. But I want to thank you again for joining me today here on the Catholic Foodie Show. More Catholic culinary inspiration to help you grow in faith around the table of the Eucharist and around the family dinner table can be found over at catholicfoodie.com. This is it, folks. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, bon appetit. We'll see you tomorrow.